You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And we're here to talk about creation. And um, Paul, this week, it's coming up to <laughs> St. Patrick's Day. Um, it is. Yes, yeah. that's right. Are, are you going to yeah. get yourself a shamrock shake? <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we were talking before this episode um, yeah. because... Well, first of all, I, I guess I should say St. Patrick's Day is not a really big thing here in England. Obviously, it is in Ireland, um, and, it, and it is for any Irish that are living here in England. Mm-hmm. But I think it's actually probably a bigger deal for you guys over in the States because of the Irish-American diaspora. Uh, yeah, a little and, bit, yeah. Yeah, and you were telling me that, that there's this thing called a shamrock milkshake. Yeah, yeah a shamrock shake, <laughs> Presum- yeah. A shamrock shake, presumably not made with real shamrocks. No, presumably not. <laughs> I, I hope not. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 at McDonald's, right? And um, I, I don't know that we should say that they don't sponsor our video, so you know, don't think that's a ad <laughs> ad keyword there, uh, YouTube or other platforms. But anyway, yeah, it's at a local fast food restaurant mm. where you can go, and it's like a green. They they take their vanilla shake and then they just add a. A mild mint flavor and then a little green coloring and then there you go a shamrock shake and i'm told this year they've got something well, they with go. with with oreos in it too that they they've they've sort of expanded their shake line to include these sorts of i don't know what they are exactly but cookies and cream stuff oh. or whatever i don't know anyway it's green and i guess people like it <laughs> well i've i've learned something new anyway there you um, go. and and there's another anniversary this week. Um, yes, it's the anniversary of the birth right. of uh, it's the anniversary of the birth of William Jennings Bryan. That's true. Yes, um, of Scopes trial fame, and That's of right. course, you live in Dayton, Tennessee. Yes, which is where the Scopes trial happened. So, That's... is is that a big deal for you in Dayton? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's two days. It's two days after uh, St. Patrick's Day. It's March 19. It is. Uh, no, it's not a big deal. At, at Bryan College, which is named after William Jennings Bryan, this is their Heritage Week, so they will have mm. talks about the history of the college and whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, it's not a big deal. Uh, the Scopes trial happened here, and for those folks who might only know it from the movie Inherit the Wind, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, Bryan did not keel over in the courtroom horrified at the at the uh cross-examination that he was enduring and and all that nonsense he actually um they concluded the trial and then he went to church uh and this was the day after he'd been in chattanooga this is a really interesting story we, we got this story from his driver years later but apparently he was in chattanooga the day before arranging for the printing of uh his final um, his closing argument that he was going to give. Uh, and uh, he was hit by a car. Now, in those days, right, you know, it's the 20s. Nobody's driving really fast, but still, he got knocked over. Uh, and then the next day, he he dies peacefully in his sleep in the afternoon, during his afternoon nap. So, you know, I, I speculate there might have been some relationship there, blood clot or something that, that happened and, and caused him to to pass away that day. Um, but no, he didn't, he didn't pass. He didn't die out, die in, right there in the middle of, um, of the courtroom in a dramatic fashion like the movie shows. So now, you know, <laughs> there we are. There we are. What's the topic for today? then? Oh, oh, Paul. Oh, oh, Paul. Uh, here we go. It's this book by William Lane Craig. It is in quest of the historical Adam. Now we do not have with us Dr. Craig. Um, this is so this is going to be the beginning of a two-part discussion on the book. We're going to talk uh, theology and Bible studies this episode and the next episode we'll talk about 
uh, the science. And we'll have special mm-hmm. guests each episode. We'll get to that here in a second. But, Paul, I just finished reading this book recently. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I liked it. <laughs> so let me just give me, let me give you a little uh, uh, rundown. Uh, so the uh, the idea that he's putting forward here in the book is that um, we evangelical believers can get along with evolution just fine, no problem, if we allow for essentially recognizing that Genesis one through eleven is written intentionally as a myth and is not intended to be taken as any sort of historical record. And, well, that's, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. It's, it's the, the details are not meant to be historical. Let's put it that way. And then he goes through human evolution and he tries to tell us that uh, maybe Adam and Eve lived 750,000 years ago somewhere. And, yeah. So it's, it's a theistic evolution book. It's a book that's basically trying to, to tell us that we can all have our theology just as we have it, and we can preserve, you know, inerrancy and whatnot, and, um, and still uh, accept evolution and be okay with that. Now, Paul, I'm pretty sure that's not your position. No, it, it's not my position. <laughs> um, so g- given, given that... Um, this is a theistic evolution book, and this doesn't represent the position of either of us here on the podcast. Why are we talking about it? And are, are, are we? Is our aim just to kind of do a hatchet job on on this book, Todd? Is that what we're planning to do? Well, let me tell you, there's a there's a fleshly desire in my heart to do quite a hatchet job on this book. <laughs> um, but yeah, why why should we discuss this? And and I guess we're discussing it because it's. It's extremely popular. Dr. Craig is very well known as an apologetics expert. Um, I heard about him when I was a student, and now years later, he, you know, we're still hearing about him. He's still putting out books, so he's very well known and very influential. And I imagine some of our listeners have have seen this book, and they are, you know, wondering what the deal is. You know, should we read it? Maybe they're young earth creationists and then they don't know exactly what his position is. Um, although I don't think he's really kept it a secret. Um, so, so yeah, I thought it would be worthwhile to do this. Now, you know, thinking about this and praying about this, and, and this is tough because, yeah, like I said, there's a part of me that really disliked the book in rather intensely. And I, I, don't want our podcast to just become, as you say, a hatchet job, right? Just just come on and beat up people who aren't even here to defend themselves. That seems inappropriate. And I was trying to figure out how in the world are we going to do this? And, you know, what came into my mind as I was thinking and praying about this was very simple. You know, what are the, what are the great commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus also told us to love your enemy. Um, so even those who are treating you poorly, which we will see uh, is <laughs> part of part of Craig's approach. And yeah, so you don't you don't you don't return blow for blow and eye for eye and 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 life for life. You turn the other cheek and you and you go the extra mile for the people who abuse you and treat you poorly. And you heap burning coals on their head and but ultimately, you know, even if I don't heap burning coals on his, on his head, I, I'm going to treat Dr. Craig with more respect than he treated me. How about that? Yeah. Now, we should probably just tell our listeners who William Lane Craig is, because I, I guess I guess some will know uh, because he is a very he is a very prominent personality right, uh, in, the, yeah. in the Christian world. But I guess some of our listeners might not know who William Lane Craig is. Um, So William Lane Craig is uh, an analytical philosopher. Uh, He's a theologian. He's a very well-known Christian apologist. Um, He's particularly known uh, for his debates with atheists and agnostics and others. Uh, He has uh, done a lot of research and work, uh, particularly in a couple of areas. Uh, One is on what's known as the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. Uh, 
-hmm. and the other is his defense of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he's the author of many books, uh, including the one, obviously, that we're going to talk about today. Yep. And since 2014, he has been the professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. Um, right. So he's got a big public profile. He's a very well-known um, debater and apologist. Uh, his books get lots of attention. And so, you know, we, we thought it was worthwhile just trying to interact with this book a bit. Yeah, yeah. And he also runs that website, Reasonable Faith. Um, That's correct, which, yeah. Which may be something that people are pretty familiar with given that, you know, people share stuff on social media and whatnot. So that's probably where you've encountered yeah. him if you have encountered him somewhere randomly. All right. Well, shall we get to it? Um, yeah, let's get started. <laughs> so this week, uh, to talk about theology, we thought, you know, what we need is a theologian. Um, so we've invited here today to be with us uh, Dr. Hans Matawemi. Uh, Dr. Matawemi is a professor of theology at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And he not only has a his doctorate in theology, but he also has a medical degree, an MD. So he has uh, a, a multiple backgrounds that will be relevant to what we're talking about. So Dr. Matawemi, thanks for being with us. Greetings. Good to be with you guys today. It's great oh. to have you with us, Hans. Um, now, Hans, um, I, I, as I was reading your bio in preparation for today, um, <laughs> I saw that you have a very interesting background because apparently you were you were born in Sweden, but you grew up in in Nigeria and in Austria and in England. Is that is that right? So could you could you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, I am one of those people that uh, sometimes referred to as third culture people. So mm -hmm. I, I've grown up in lots of places. I'm from everywhere and nowhere. But um, yeah, I, I was born in Sweden. I only lived there about a year and then we moved to Nigeria. Uh, I'm Nigerian. And um, we're there until I was about seven, six or seven. And then we moved to Austria and I grew up in, went to school in Vienna. Um, and the reason for those moves, my, my dad was a nuclear, was working as a nuclear physicist and, uh, wow. uh, with the international atomic energy agency, which was, which is in headquartered in Vienna. Um, and Nigeria was a British colony. And so my parents' generation, my dad's generation were all, were all about the boarding school experience. And my dad and all his friends went to boarding school. So when I was between age 10 and 17, my dad thought it would be a great idea. Um, it wasn't, uh, I can tell you that. But then at the age of 10, I should go to boarding school in England. Uh, so I had the whole <laughs> British boarding school experience, uh, did GCSEs and A-levels. And, um, and so that was the British connection. And then I eventually ended up uh, in Montreal, Quebec doing an undergrad and then came to the U.S. for the first time for medical school. And I've been in the U.S. since then. <laughs> we, we should probably just tell people what GCSEs and A-levels are. <laughs> so, yeah, so us uh, Americans, I, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, so so for the, the American <clears throat> listeners, uh, basically GCSEs are the exams that you take at the age of 16 when you finish your secondary education. And then you go on after that to do a couple of years usually of A-levels. Um, which you then take at 18, and those are preparation for university. Uh, so that's kind of your, your entrance into, in, in, into university life is um, based on your A-level results. Okay. Could you stop then at 16 and just say, I'm not going to take my GCSE and I'm going to go work as a garbage collector or whatever? Oh, yeah, you, take, you, you can take your GCSEs and then finish school at yeah, and then go off oh. and do something else. Do yeah, whatever. So school, oh, okay. school finishes at sixteen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, huh. um, yeah. So, so, so that's great. That's that's a really interesting background you've got there, uh, Hans. And I, I know that this particular topic that we're going to be talking about today, about um, Adam and the historicity of Adam, is one that you've had a long interest in. In fact, you were one of the editors with uh, Mike Reeves of this book, Adam: The Fall and Original Sin. Mm. Um, so obviously this is a, this is a topic that you've given 
a great deal of thought to. Right. Um, bearing in mind, you know, what how Todd has kind of set this up, you know, that um, we, we, we do want to kind of look constructively um, at, at the book. You know, we, we, we're going to critique some aspects of the book, but we do want to be sort of constructive about it. So let's begin. You know, what, what do you think are some of the positives that you see in William Lane Craig's book? That was a very long question. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah no, no worries. Um, no, I, I actually think there are a number of uh, uh, positive uh, features to the book. Uh, beginning first, as, as you all mentioned, he's an analytic philosopher by training. So that just means, uh, at least to my mind, he's just a very clear writer. He writes with uh, the clarity of an analytic philosopher. And, um, and that means when he's talking about controversial issues, typically academics, when they're talking about really difficult issues that are controversial, can sometimes find ways to sort of skirt the issues or a kind of ambiguous kind of prose. Craig doesn't have that. I mean, he, you know exactly what he thinks and you know where he stands. And I think that's just helpful for readers. Um, the other, another um, virtue to the book is it's interdisciplinary. Uh, so there's an interdisciplinarity to his writing, which, to be honest, just as a as a professor myself, I, I it, it's a bit scary just seeing the. He's a philosopher, but he's dealing with the Old Testament scholarship. He's dealing with New Testament scholarship, and then he's wading into the thick of the sciences, uh, paleoanthropology, paleoneurology, archaeology, and all the rest. Um, it's, it's just very impressive. Um, uh, most of us are just too scared to do that kind of thing. So I think that's, that's, that's something to his credit. Um, obviously, Craig, is just, he's a brilliant thinker. He has a, he has a sharp mind. Um, and, and as a result, when in the book, you'll see he'll engage with things, I guess they're fads, or fashions in academia or in Old Testament scholarship. And he's just not a, he's not afraid to just go after what he sees as poor argumentation or scholarship. And again, I think it, it's, there are parts of the book that I found really helpful in that regard. And so he's representing evangelical, uh, evangelical scholarship. And I think it's significant that he actually thinks there's a historical core to Genesis 1 to 11. Um, now, obviously, we're gonna. There's gonna be things we're gonna disagree with, but I think it's worth noting that there are a number of thinkers in the evangelical world that aren't convinced there is a historical core to those early chapters. Mm. So I think, so I, I think it's it's great to have someone like of his stature actually defending some kind of historicity to those chapters. Um, maybe finally, uh, he also. He also believes that all of humanity is descended from a first couple. So uh, at, at least th that's a that's an argument he makes in the book, although there might be some questions we we'll raise about that. But he, he does think Adam and Eve are universal progenitors of the human race, which, again, is not a is at least in some places, not a fashionable position to take. And the fact that he's defending that in the book, I think, is also admirable. Um, so those are a few a few sort of pluses um mm. i would say yeah now when you when we uh sort of read his book we we realize that you know he he perceives uh, a contrast in literary genre between the first 11 chapters of genesis and genesis chapters 12 to 50 um and I just wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit about that. You know, what, what is it that he sees in Genesis 1 to 11 um, that makes him think that it stands apart from the rest of Genesis? And do you think that he's right about that? Yeah, so uh, just for our listeners, I mean, that, that, that view that Genesis 1 to 11 is distinct from Genesis 12 to 50, that's a fairly common view uh, in academia. So he, he is, he's not unusual in that regard. And his reasoning is fairly similar. I think he, in his mind, Genesis 1 to 11, when you read it, it, it just sort of seems to be, it seems to share the same world as the ancient Near Eastern myths, um, that um, different ancient flood stories or ancient accounts uh, of the 
cultures surrounding Israel. It seems more in that world. Um, whereas when you compare Genesis 12, starting with Abraham to Genesis 50, it, it seems that seems more historical in, in a way that we would recognize. So, so I think his main reason is just that it, 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 and he goes on to develop that in the book, but just the ancient Near Eastern myths, it seems to share the same world as ancient Near Eastern myths. Um, and I guess, you know, my main reaction to that is, um, is just that one, there's a, there's the late Noah Weeks was someone who I found helpful in this regard. He, he, he did, he would question how much we think we know about ancient Near Eastern literature and the ancient Near Eastern world. And that a lot of what Old Testament scholars are saying, it some a lot of it is kind of speculative. And we seem really confident in terms of what we think we know and also what the relationship is between the ancient Near Eastern text and the Old Testament. And I sort of share some of his hesitancy in that regard. And as a theologian, I, I think I, I I appreciate the uh, work of you know, Old Testament scholars about the ancient Near Eastern world, but I think we need to prioritize the uh, the canon. The we need to prioritize that what's in the biblical text first, and then we can see how that might relate to the ancient Near Eastern literature, rather than doing it the other way around. And I do worry that I do worry that Craig maybe falls into that trap. Just to clarify for our listeners, when you refer to the ancient Near Near East, um, what what are we talking about here, Hans? Well, we're talking about um, we're talking when I say ancient Near Eastern literature, we're talking about things like the Atrahasis epic, with the uh, Sumerian flood story. These are different sort of founding uh, stories or accounts of ancient peoples the ways in which they were trying to understand, you know, how, how did things come to be uh, talking about gods, um, gods and how they created. And so, um, so there were, there were, diff there are different accounts that we have, at least or parts of these accounts that we have. And um, with ancient people trying to give an origin story. And so then when these were discovered, um, it, 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 it's, it's not surprising that people were trying to figure out, well, what's the relationship between these origin stories over here and the biblical origin story? Like what's the relationship yeah. that one borrow from the other, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're really talking about the literature of ancient Babylonia, Sumeria, right. Assyria, Egypt, the, these kinds of nations, right. of the ancient Near East. Right. Okay. Um, and, Craig sort of talks about these sort of family resemblances uh, that he thinks that Genesis 1 to 11 has with these sort of mythological accounts that we see in, in the literature of the ancient Near East. Is that right? That's um, right. What, what are these family resemblances? What, what is he talking about here? Yeah, so he has a list of uh, nine or ten family resemblances. And, um, you know, I, I think... Myths are narratives, uh, oral or literary narratives was one. Uh, myths are traditional stories handed down from generation to generation. Um, myths are sacred for the society that embraces them. So these are fairly general kind of <laughs> concepts, right? Myths are stories in which deities are important characters um, and myths sort of exhibit these fantastic elements that aren't really concerned about logical consistency, uh, th these kinds of criteria. So he has, he has nine or 10 of these that um, scholars, I mean, I think there's consensus among Old Testament scholars that when you look at ancient Near Eastern myths, you find these features. So he lists these 10, and then part of what he wants to do is to go to Genesis 1 to 11 to see to what extent does Genesis 1 to 11 exemplify those same features that we find in the in these ancient narratives. And I think that's I think that's something that I found really refreshing, let's say that, in his work. Um, too often I, I 
I just hear about the parallels, right? Or someone will say, you know, if you look at atrahasis, you see these attributes. Or if you look at Enuma Elish, that's another one. You'll see this feature. And I've read some of those myths, and they don't read anything like what's in the Bible. There's <laughs> there's very little in in common with them. And I think this is this. How can you say this is the same as that? This is this this you know weird mythology here is the same as um as what's in the scripture. So an example, you know. In in the it, I think it's Enuma Elish where you have uh, the gods are tired of working, and so they create people to do the work for them, and there you go. Um, that's basically what it's for, and 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 it's kind of an afterthought. It's not really like it is in Genesis one, where you know we're the sort of crescendo of the week. Um, mm. Where it it's really degrading to to people and mm-hmm. and Craig doesn't uh, he he he's kind of skeptical of that, which I thought was good, and then he has these criteria that he wants to use instead and say okay well if we can show there's enough of these criteria of myths that are present in Genesis one through eleven then it stands to reason that we should understand them as mythology rather than as as some other genre, which is honestly way better than a lot of other treatments that I've seen among evangelical uh, people trying to, evangelical scholars trying to wed the Bible to evolution. So I, I kind of appreciated that. Even though, like you say, some of those, some of those really almost irrelevant, right? Like his first one, as you said, in myths or narratives, uh, well, obviously, <laughs> Just, there lots of things are narratives. That doesn't strike me as a really important criteria. Right. Not on the same level as, say, myths have fantastical elements. And that's where I think he spends a lot of time on the idea that that Genesis 1 through 11 shows fantastical features and... Could you could you expand on that, Hans? Um, yeah, um, that you're right. I mean, when you look at the, the features that he emphasize that he emphasizes as similar between Genesis one to eleven and the ancient Near Eastern myths, almost all of them, I would say, I, I would think on people who hold to the traditional view would accept. You know that yeah. that narratives, yeah. that traditional stories, the sacred for the society, et cetera. So what's really interesting is, like you said, the fantastic elements. And I'm just going to list what he, what he, what it, what he's talking about. So, God created the world in six days. The first human beings were vegetarian. There was a snake in Eden who could talk. There were rivers in Eden. There were cherubim with a flaming sword. People uh, before the flood lived a really long time compared to what uh, lifespans today. Noah's flood was global. Linguistic diversity originated from the um, Tower of Babel or Babel, and the earth is only thousands of years old. So in Craig's mind, these are fantastic elements. Craig thinks it's 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 impossible that these things are true. And he also he also thinks that the biblical author who wrote that into the text likely didn't believe those were historically true as well. Um, and 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 um, those are and since Genesis one to eleven has those criteria, again that that's another reason for considering them to be mythical, to uh, to have the element of myth. And it's 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 fascinating. Um, when I read the book, I, I was chuckling to myself as I read that section because I thought, well, that's interesting because I I thought these were straightforwardly historical. Uh, you know? <laughs> Uh, I'm not actually yeah. sure what the trouble is, but but anyway, I mean, this gets at. I mean, obviously, in the in our in a post enlightenment cultural context, you know, these kind these are the this list includes the kinds of things that people are just uh, inclined to disbelieve. Uh, but does Craig offer any sound reasons for thinking these are fantastic in the sense that they didn't happen that they're not historical? And I wasn't able to find any good reasons. Yeah, yeah. That that's a that's a feature that I noticed as well. I I 
you know, given that he's an analytic philosopher and he's going through these criteria, I thought, okay, well, he's going to rehearse a few reasons why it is not possible. He'll mention radiometric dating, right? That, and he'll explain how it works and he'll, and he'll tell you how, you know, there's no way. Or he'll mention the starlight and time problem. There's some really easy, basic things that anybody in the creation evolution world kind of mm. knows about and would sort of trot out as the evidences of why you can't believe Genesis is, is really historical. None. Of, I, I didn't find any of that there. It was just, mm-hmm. it was yeah. just kind of open season to make fun of people who do believe that they are historical, and and yeah. it's just very strange. <laughs> or or, ev- or even criteria that arise from within the text itself. You know, that's that's the kind of the question yeah. that, that was in my mind. What what are his criteria for identifying these particular elements of the text yeah. as fantastical? Uh, you know, has has he got a coherent methodology here? And what it seems to boil down to is, in essence, his personal incredulity about these things. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at That's podcast at if you would like more information about what we discussed today, be sure to check out our show notes at corsi.org podcast. That's corsi.org podcast. Is Genesis History is the film that is a first step on a journey toward understanding the history of the Earth according to Genesis. Follow along with narrator Del Tackett as he travels across the continent with over a dozen scientists and scholars to see fascinating new evidence of creation and a global flood. This film is free to watch on the Is Genesis History YouTube page, along with all the Beyond features which dig deeper into young earth creationism. Be sure to check out the New Creation blog as well, which is sponsored by the film, at newcreation.blog. That's newcreation.blog. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Now, Craig is is really careful here. He wants to say, look, I don't have an anti-supernaturalist bias. Um, <laughs> right. Because he'll accept think- miracle. That's really bizarre sure. about the whole thing. He'll say yeah. certain things are miracles, and so that's not really open to examination. But this is not a miracle, and so it's clearly ludicrous. Yeah. Which is very strange. Yeah. So, so do, do we have reasons, Hans, do you think, to be somewhat skeptical of that claim of not having an anti-supernaturalist bias? Because, you know, I, I guess we have to remember that you know, Craig is a 21st century man and he's operating mm-hmm. within a context where the dominant kind of paradigm, the dominant worldview is this materialistic scientific worldview. Right. And these, he seems to have a problem with elements in the text that stand uh, in stark contrast when we hold them against that backdrop of the scientific materialist worldview. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of, a couple of, points like one is in the um i i forget if it's in the introduction to the book or chapter one but early on in the book he says methodologically the first uh the chapters on biblical and theological themes he's gonna focus on internal questions in the text and he's gonna set aside science i mean he actually emphasizes that precisely because he doesn't want to fall into the top of uh, science sort of coming in through the back door and, and 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 exercising or shaping the way he interprets scripture. So I appreciated that. But then when we get to the fantastic elements, it seemed to me that the only reason he judges them to be fantastic in the way that he defines them is just because it, it's not plausible in our sort of scientific mindset or in, given our cultural assumptions. Um, so I, I, I was wondering if he was being consistent to what he set out to do. So that, that's the first point. And then secondly, in terms of the anti-supernaturalist bias, um, I, you know, in terms of we want to read him charitably. And so as Todd was alluding, he does actually explicitly say, I am not anti-supernaturalist. Not, I, I believe in miracles, etc. So I, I want to want to acknowledge that. But then when one of like i said one of his um one of the fantastic elements that he mentions is the fact that there were cherubim with a flaming sword so he does actually elaborate on that 
And then when you look at the argument he gives, he says it's something to this effect. Well, Israelites would never uh, would never would never sort of depict something in the something from the heavenlies or from the heavens because they had an explicit commandment from God that they're not supposed to worship heavenly realities. But then in but in the Genesis account, we actually see them depicting cherubim outside the Garden of Eden. So uh, Craig says it must be the case that they didn't believe those were real because because if they believed they were real, then they were they would have been going against the commandment. So uh, that's something like the his reasoning. And I just thought and that was I was a little surprised because that that just didn't have the same kind of analytic rigor that he that he has in other parts of the book. And I yeah. thought, well, that's interesting because, <laughs> you know, in Exodus, in Exodus, it's actually what God says is, you're not you're not supposed to worship anything in the heavens on the earth or under the earth. So, I mean, it's a pretty universal commandment. Um, but the key is you're not supposed to worship these these elements. But there's nothing in the commandment that says you can't depict them or you can't even uh, you can't even sort of um, create an object for some other purpose other than worship. And, you know, like, and I, I've interacted with Craig on this, and I pointed out that in Exodus and in First Kings and elsewhere, you see the Israelites um, representing, physically representing objects and creatures. Uh, for instance, um, in the temple, you have pomegranates, you have the sea being depicted, and you have bulls, like uh, animals being depicted in Solomon's temple. And there's no sense that there was anything wrong with that. And the point is, those weren't worshipped. Whereas when Israelites uh, depicted the golden calf, that was idolatry because that that was in the context of worship. So, um, so all of that, all his argumentation for why he thought it couldn't, the cherubim couldn't be historical or literal or real, just actually, you know, upon closer scrutiny, it just didn't seem plausible. And then, which then raises the question, what's really going on here? What, what's actually motivating this objection? And I think personal incredulity was actually the best answer I could come up with. And I, you know, I don't say that to be, I don't, I don't want to be dismissive of Craig, but it, it's just hard not to see that as the only viable uh, what the only viable thing that's happening behind the scenes. Um, yeah. Yeah. His criteria are not all equally important to identifying mythology. Um, and then the ones that are important, he really doesn't hit with the same analytical clarity that he does with other things. So it does come off as sounding like, I, I just can't believe this. So it must be mythology. Right. Yeah. And, and moving on, uh, just for a second here, because he's got more uh, after this, um, his understanding of myth, I think, is really important. And it's, I think our listeners really need to understand this, that, that he's not saying that mythology is something that is um, just a made-up story or that it's something that is patently false. He he does believe that these are sacred stories that the that the ancient cultures would believe in, uh, to an extent. Um, but because he notes throughout the ancient Near East, you have a host of stories that are mutually contradictory, and <laughs> they are all sort of compiled together in this sort of mishmash religion of the ancient Near East. That 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 means that the ancient Near Eastern people understood that the truth of their mythology was not found in the literal details. Um, so he, he specifically mentions, you know, what, what is the sky and what is the sun? And he saw, talks about, um, you know, in, in Egypt, you could believe that the sky was uh, sort of the uh, a goddess, the body of a goddess. You could believe that it's the underside of a giant celestial cow. Um, so there were these there were these mutually exclusive ideas, and so he he infers from that that well, they didn't take them in the same way that we take our stories. 
that we have this very literalistic mindset and that we want all the details to work out right. And so, but in the ancient Near East, when they, they had these mutually exclusive stories, then it didn't bother them and so forth. And so, yeah, so, so he's not denigrating Genesis 1 through 11. He is trying to trying to put it into a cultural context in which he can argue that these unbelievable fantastical details are in fact part of what it is to be mythology. It, it, mm-hmm. Of course that's true. That's true of all ancient Near Eastern mythology. And they knew it at the time when they were writing it down. So there was no, mm-hmm. there's no point in us fussing about all the details because they're not really important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Now, I thought, you know, as I read that, I thought it was really, you know, the ancient Near East comes, and this is a really interesting thing because we have a lot of literature from the ancient Near East from a long period of time. So you can see the development of individual cities as they merge together into these empires. And it's, each city then has its own sort of God and its own sort of mythology. And so I don't think he really appreciates or at least discusses the the just the cultural diversity and the idea that you could have one part of Egypt that believed that the heavens were a goddess and another part of Egypt that believed that the heavens were the underside of a cow and that you know the faithful scribe would write it all down even though you know he knew well this this probably isn't right unless I think the goddess is a cow uh which I don't think he would. So, so I so I think it's important for us to sort of give give credit to Craig that he is not here trying to trying to just denigrate the scripture, even though he seems to denigrate, you know, my view of the scripture. <laughs> he does not like the idea that 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 we can take this historically. So the second element, then, Paul, you want to bring us in on that next element there he has yeah. in Genesis 1 through 11 we've sort of alluded to it yeah so you know if we, I, we've talked about the the mythology that he kind of sees the mythological elements that he sees in Genesis 1 to 11 but he doesn't dismiss Genesis 1 to 11 as wholly mythological um, he also sees that there is some kind of historical core um, in Genesis 1 to 11 and so he introduces this concept of Uh, mytho history Uh, this is not an idea that originated um with william lane craig as you know as as he says in the book but he thinks it applies to genesis 1 to 11 um so hans what does he mean by mytho history uh could you sort of unpack that for us a bit yeah um i think you were sort of hitting on it i mean he wants to say that um there is a historical core to in Genesis 1 to 11. And one of the main places you see that is in the genealogies. So it does see, it seems like the author of Genesis 1 to 11 um, believed that there were these personages, there were these people and they were related to each other genealogically. And that, that he, for Craig, he, that must be historical. But then, but then, so there's that historical core, but then he, the way it's presented, it's, it, it, it's furnished in the language of myth. So there's a lot of the events and the, uh, that we read in these accounts, we're not supposed to take those historically, but, but there's a kind of, there is this core that's, that, that's, that's history. Um, and genealogies play a really big role um, in that, in, in the Old Testament for Craig. Uh, so it ends up kind of being this mishmash or this mix where I, I I'm not sure how to apportion it, but you know, but yeah, there's this this history there, but then a lot of what's uh, a lot of the fat around the, the, this historical core is is mythical, and so of course then that raises the question, uh, Craig, how do you know how are we supposed to know what which bits are like the historical core and which bits are mythical. And I actually asked him that question when we're at a, at an event and he doesn't, he doesn't like that question. And he actually, I think he pushes back on the question just to say, well, just, just because I can't really give you a firm answer to the question doesn't mean the concept of mytho history isn't valid, but 
but uh, fair enough. But the problem is, at least for me, like in the book, he seems to spe- he spends a long time sort of telling us, you know, these fantastic elements. These are mythic. These are part of the myth. Uh, these aren't historical, or whatever. These aren't supposed to be interpreted literal, literally. But these are the things that, you know, elsewhere he has a list of things that he yeah. thinks are true and we should believe. So he, he is doing that in the book. So I, I don't think it's unfair to ask him, well, like, on what basis are you making that distinction? But he doesn't really have a good answer to that, um, as, as, yeah. as I recall. Yeah. So I think in, in his rejoinder to the participants in that symposium, um, which was published um, as part of the Sapientia um, sort of dialogue mm-hmm. and we can link to that in the show notes you know he he says trying to sort out the mythological and the historical elements it's it's not like kind of separating out um colored balls you know to two different mm-hmm. types of colored balls it's it's more like coffee and cream so they're kind of all intimately mixed together and you can't right. just sort of separate them separate them out right. but again then i'm kind of confused because as you say <laughs> Um, you yes. know, in the book, he then does want to identify certain elements as mm. as mythological elements yeah. and other elements as a kind of historical core. Right. So it's almost like he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it. And and uh, again, I'm I'm left asking this question about: Is there a coherent methodology right. um, that that's under underlying what what he's doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I guess so that, I, so just to jump in, I mean, I guess hmm. as a creationist. Um, it, it just seems to me that, like, I, I think part of the problem is just the very project he's engaged in. And, and we've seen many scholars try to do, try to figure out a way to, like, here's what we know to be true extra-textually based on science, based on our understanding of the modern world. It's intention with what, the, what Genesis 1 to 11 and other parts of scripture are saying. We still take the Bible seriously. So let's try and figure out a way to make this work. You know, that project, and we, three of us, we know really bad examples of this. And, (laughs) you know, historically, you know, like all sorts of people have tried to, have given a crack at solving this problem. And here Craig is coming along and he's, he's smarter than most of the people who've tried this. He's given a good crack at it. But I, I just think, I just think that, trying to solve that problem itself is is it, it's not really solvable at least from my perspective I think we, we we just need to we just need to go back to some principles of you know like this is God's word and God's word is authoritative and epistemology there are all these foundational things we have to return to uh, to clarify why uh, well you know why we think, why we should accept the way God has given us the narrative. So I think in Craig's defense, I just, I just think what he's trying to do is almost an impossible task, and he, but he gives it a good effort. I mean, a good effort. Um, hmm. Yeah, right. that's, that's very helpful. I think so, um, it'd be good to turn to the new Testament. Talk yes. I was just going to say that because he, he does have one, he does have one thing that he thinks is useful for for recognizing part of that history. And and again, you know, it's it's a little maddening because he's very quick to as you say dismiss certain details, but then other things he thinks, well, it's that way in the New Testament. And and again, this is something that I kind of appreciated about him. He was kind of he was kind of hard on people who just quote the New Testament as support for a creationist perspective. I, I remember, Paul, we did an episode recently where we did that quite a lot, talked about New Testament treatment we and did. the Old Testament. And I think he would hate that episode. <laughs> 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 and I think he'd hate it because yeah. we didn't go through all the very careful argumentation of why we know the New Testament authors are referencing the Old Testament as historical reality and not just a literary reference, right? So how do we know that when uh, Paul talks about Adam, it's not just like Paul referencing, say, um, Gandalf or Aslan or something like that, where... You, you know, I could I could reference what Gandalf did in the Mines of Moria and and 
you would know what I'm talking about, and we would have this cultural understanding that I'm making a literary reference, and no one would think anything of it. Um, I wouldn't have to say now. Now understand, I understand that he's not real. I, I don't have to do that. Um, so I think Craig's got an important point here that we can't just you know go around listing New Testament references to the Old Testament and say that this means that they thought it was historical. On the other hand. I thought he was also pretty dismissive of pretty much every New Testament reference to Adam as being literary and or in at least indistinguishable from a literary reference. Um, and he gets hung up on uh, particularly Romans 5. Um, Hans, can you walk us through that little bit right there? Um. Yeah, let me back. I, I, now I have to, it's been a while since I read the book. I'm trying to remember, because just to your point, I do think he recognizes w- one or two clear instances of Adam being referenced in the New Testament that he thinks are clearly historical. But then there, but then a number of the others, are he, he says, are literary. So the distinction he's trying to make is, you know, how do we know when the uh, apostolic reference is merely literary versus actual truth or or history um and my i you summarized it really well and i guess i'll just say i i, I agree with all of that I, I agree with everything craig is saying sort of in principle i just don't know that that i don't know that that actually has anything to do with that really helps us understand what the apostles are doing when they're when they're making references to Adam um, in the New Testament. I, I think, so just to kind of, I guess, to my own view is, I think when the apostles are making, are referring to Adam in a seemingly illustrative way, they're assuming Adam's historicity. Uh, whereas for, for Craig, illustrative references probably tell us that that's just merely literary and not historical. I think for, for the apostles, they might be illustrative to use Craig's view uh, language, but they just assuming they're they're assuming historicity. Um, and then there are other times where the apostles assert assert Adam's historicity. And for Craig, those are clear, those those do imply that Adam that they took Adam to be historical. So I just think the way he's trying to part is a really fine parsing. He's trying to show, well, you know, most of the time Adam was merely literary. Just a couple of times Adam was, they meant Adam to be historical. Therefore, we can conclude that the apostles did think Adam was historical. I just, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I guess, thanks. I mean, I, good. That's good news, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it just, it, it just seems like I described like hair splitting. And um, I'm not actually sure, it, you know, it, it, it's making it very complicated or overly complicated. Um, but yeah. yeah, to the Romans, I, I guess I, that was all, a, I'm trying to dodge this Romans 5 thing because I remind me, I'm actually, I, I'm forgetting what he's Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> the basic idea that I recall from that is that, that and, it, and as you say, it's been a while since I read this, but the, the basic concept I think was that, um, because Jesus is said to have come to fix what Adam did, uh, a real person making a real sacrifice doesn't do that for what a fictional character did. Mm-hmm. So that in that sense, those references must necessarily go beyond just the written part of what's in Genesis, right? I see. I, I see. Yeah, I I think that was, and it was very complicated because he was going through Greek grammar and he was going through, you know, the structure and he's very, he was very microscopic about it. That kind of drove me crazy because he's, he, 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 he doesn't see original sin in the text there Mm -hmm. because Paul in that passage doesn't actually reference the old man or the flesh or anything any of those concepts that are related to the original sin right so because it's not there then that's not what paul is talking about and which i thought was a really 
like you say, that's a that's a very fine hair to split, and I don't see that making a lot of sense to me. But but I think that's how he goes about it. So so in the other passages, because the the passage doesn't really go beyond what we have written in Genesis, you can't argue that it is not a literary reference. I th- in in his yeah. analytical fashion, right? So so. But there is those one or two handful of passages where there is something more than just what's in that original text, and therefore that must be a historical detail. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, if if you look, um, if we're guided by the history of interpretation, and if we look at how believers down the ages have understood these passages, I, you know, this is just feels like a novel, like these distinctions he's making feel very pretty novel. And, and that, yeah. and, and I'm worried that it's, it's the whole, the whole way he's trying to, this mytho history, the, the, the framework that he has, I'm, it, it sort of feels like he's bringing that to the new Testament and then trying to show, trying to show, look, uh, you know, the historicity of Adam is way more complicated than we thought. And and he, you know, and, I, and I'm just worried that that's not actually that's not actually there. The apostles didn't share that framework that Craig is trying to bring. Mm. That's that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. And he he also uh, kind of draws this analogy with the way that the New Testament uses non-canonical references. Mm. So the way that the way that it draws on you know extra biblical literature, and he he kind of says, look, you know. If, if you regard this as more than simply illustrative, then, you know, you're kind of committing yourself to believing all these kinds of things that are in non-canonical literature. And he seems very dismissive of that. Is, you know, what, what would be your response on that, Hans? Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was interesting. So he, he mentions he looks at Second Peter uh, in particular and Second uh, Peter chapter two, where Peter references Noah as a herald of righteousness and that phrase, herald of righteousness, isn't in the Old Testament, but we do find it in Jewish tradition. Um, and, and then the same Second Peter references Lot as righteous Lot. And again, that's not in Je- Genesis, but it's in Jewish tradition. And, and then the last example was in Jude 14 to 15, where Jude uh, cites First uh, Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphal book. Um, and, and again, and yet it, a lot of traditional Christians will read, uh, Jude as referencing the historical Enoch as historical, but first Enoch is not a canonical book. So I think Craig will then say, yeah. So he says, you know, if, if you just go by virtue of citation proves historicity, that's going to cause a lot of problems in those three examples. And my response is, I mean, this does get, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know that that's like, a, there's just an easy, an easy rejoinder, but it's not clear to me why, you know, uh, or Craig does consider the possibility, well, there's oral tradition and there's oral, the oral tradition could preserve by God's providence, could preserve historical, historically true events um that are captured by you know for instance first enoch maybe first enoch actually uh, received the world tradition and is preserving something that's historically true um and just developing that idea uh craig is very dismissive of that and um and you know as i recall i i read his his reasons for being dismissive of the idea that god preserved these truths in oral tradition that are then preserved for us canonically. And um, I, I just, I just think he's too quick to dismiss that, you know? Um, and there are other ways, uh, like he, he acts like it's a slam dunk, the, the, these examples he's giving, but I think there are other ways to account for those features of the text that he doesn't take seriously enough. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe. that, I thought his treatment of that was sort of like his treatment of the fantastical details, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he doesn't really go into why the spirit could not preserve this oral tradition. Right. Um, 
he just says, no, that that's that's unbelievable. Can't believe that. And he just moves on. And right. <laughs> and yet at the same time, at the end of his book, he wants you to believe that uh, the spirit has produced preserved the oral tradition of the original man and woman and their sin for seven hundred and fifty thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> so that it could be included in the Bible in a mythical form. But that's okay. But not preserving a couple thousand years of stories about Lot or, what well, Lot, not, yeah, a couple thousand years. Uh, yeah, so it just struck me as kind of a, a big double standard there. And and to, to get back to his literary reference argument, I do appreciate the idea of wanting to take care with that. But at the same time, you know, when I make a literary reference to Gandalf or Aslan, you can, you, you know, from the culture, what we think of that, right? You can go get a copy of Lord of the Rings or uh, Mm -hmm. Chronicles of Narnia. And you can look in the front cover and you'll read, this is a work of fiction. And you will understand from the cultural context across the culture that we identify that as a work of fiction. And when you look at what the New Testament authors thought of the Old Testament, that's very different, right? They they think of it as as, you know, essentially the word of God. People, you know, the prophets uh, did not speak on their own, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they spoke what they were told and and that the that the scripture is God breathed. And so it seems to me a really important ingredient that that Craig just sort of leaves out um, in his zeal to just say, you know, the the only sources of information available to Paul are the written texts of the Old Testament and the extra biblical literature, the, the Jewish um, literature of the day. And, and I think he's just left out. One really important ingredient, the divine authorship of those texts. Well, I think we've just about run out of time. Um, I do want to thank you, Hans, for joining us on Absolutely. our fun podcast here. Um, I guess to put a put a wrap it up with a bow here, um, we like some of the care that uh, Craig shows. Uh, but we still find a lot of his arguments very, very, they just fall short of what he's really trying to do, which is, as you said, very typical, unfortunately. Every time people want to wed the science to Bible, to the Bible, it just comes off as really kind of unconvincing and incomplete. Um, this might not be, well, anyway. I was going to just jump in, this might not be, yep true for the scientific part of the book but I, I think what we're saying is for the biblical and theological side i think we would agree with almost all that he affirms and we reject what he denies a lot of what he denies because yeah. what what he affirms ends up being a very stripped down a very stripped down account of what we have in genesis 1 to 11 and we'll say yes to what he affirms it's just, a, it's just a whole <laughs> lot more there. there's a whole lot more than that yeah <laughs> yep yep i agree all right well thanks for listening everyone um you can find out more about our podcast at coresci.org slash podcast that's c-o-r-e-s-c-i dot o-r-g slash podcast you can contact us podcast at coresci.org that will send emails to us uh if you want to connect with us through social media you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on all the major social platforms. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please do leave a like, click that notification bell, click that subscribe button uh, so you can be sure to be notified every time there is a new episode uh, or even a new video. If you're li- listening to us on another platform, an audio platform, please do consider leaving us a review and make sure it's good. Um, so that, uh, our, our podcast that, that really helps us, uh, that really helps us grow. That really helps us, um, reach more people with the podcast. Um, the podcast is brought to you by, uh, in part by core Academy of science. You can find us at coreside.org slash connect. 
Uh, and we are a donor-driven ministry, and we really depend on contributions from listeners like you to keep this podcast coming to you. So if you would consider a donation to Core Academy, we'd appreciate that. You can find out more about that at coresci.org slash donate. And Paul, Biblical Creation Trust is our other sponsoring ministry. Tell us about them. Yes, well, like Core Academy, uh, you know, we uh, are basically funded by uh, donations from ordinary Christians. And uh, if you'd like to help support the work that we do, um, you can go to our website, which is biblicalcreationtrust.org. And on our homepage, there's a donate button. And if you click on that, it will take you to all of the information about the various ways that you can give. And we do appreciate every single one of you that support us. Indeed we do. So next time we're going to talk the science of this book, which is more up my alley. Um, And we're going to have a special guest, a paleontologist with us here to talk about uh, hominins and human origins and so forth. And we'll, and that'll finish up our journey through Craig. So join us here again in two weeks time for that episode. See you in a fortnight. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coresci.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.